Welcome to Sparks of History, where world history and Jewish history meet. Today, we're very pleased to have with us award-winning author, John Garth. Mr. Garth is the author of Tolkien and the Great War, and more recently, the absolutely fascinating The Worlds of J.R.R. Tolkien, The Places That Inspired Middle Earth. The popularity of Mr. Garth's unique, highly researched works is highlighted by the numerous language languages that it's been translated into, including French, Russian, Spanish, Czech, German, Italian, Chinese, and Polish, with more translations forthcoming. Um, just to get started, um, a little bit about your background and how you became interested in Tolkien and his works. Oh, well, it, it all started one evening when I was nine and I picked the Lord of the Rings off my parents' shelves um, and finally fulfilled my curiosity about it because I've been opening it for some time to look at the maps and the, and the, and the names. So the names uh, were, were uh, the place names in particular were a, a real uh, draw for me, even before I knew the story. I loved the sound of them. Um, and he does have this uh, astonishing facility uh, creating names that both have have beauty and um, a, a sense that they give a sense of reality somehow. Um, and I fell in love with the book. And over the years, I reread it and reread it. And I continued to be interested in these names and in his invented languages. Um, then I went on and I studied English language and literature at Oxford, right? So Tolkien's place. Um, but it really taught me, it was a wonderful course uh, uh, in particular because it gave me this grasp of the development of English literature from the beginnings, from the Anglo-Saxon era. Um, but it taught me nothing really that I felt able to apply to why Tolkien in particular appealed to me. And it was only about 10 years later that I read a book um, by Tom Shippey, who is uh, the, the acknowledged expert on the importance of Tolkien's academic discipline, uh, philology, or what we might call now comparative historical linguistics, to Tolkien's creativity. So Shippey is all about how um, <clears throat> Tolkien's Middle Earth comes out of Tolkien's expertise in and fascination with the development of languages. It's a, it's a world he created as an arena for his languages, his invented languages, to develop it. But Shippey's also, yeah, and he's pretty wise as a, as a critic and uh, brings out many other aspects of what's valuable in Tolkien. And I realised actually finally that I had a handle now on uh, why Tolkien mattered so much to me and why I should finally put to bed all of those carping criticisms I'd heard over the years about how Tolkien was just a second-rate gothic author or whatever, you know, an escapist, right? So now the escapism thing actually still rankled with me because when I was 12, and I was probably on my first, sixth reading of The Lord of the Rings, um, 
reading the third volume where war comes to Gondor, um, I was reading it in a, in a Welsh cottage, completely quiet, um, except for once during the whole week when some uh, military jets flew over us. Um, and at that point, I decided that I was a pacifist. Right. So this was probably not the response Tolkien was looking for because he wasn't a pacifist himself. Um, uh, you know, he fought for his his country and for, for what he believed was right. Um, nonetheless, that's that's the impact it had on me. And that lasted for quite some time. And, and it seemed to me to. To, to undermine the whole idea that Tolkien was merely escapist. You know, he had made me think in a, in a very responsible, perhaps a flawed way, arguably, about the rights and wrongs of war. So much, much later on, I, I was again nerding around with Tolkien's invented languages and I was trying to do some work on the, the the creative history of them, how he started developing them and so on. And I realised that a lot of his early writings were written in training camps during the First World War, military training camps. He was in the army. And I decided that in order to understand the development of languages, I should understand his movements during the First World War. And actually, of course, that hooked me out of the, the, um, the purely linguistic thing into something much more wider, much richer biographically. Um, and I began writing Tolkien and the Great War, which took me about five years on and off. Wow. Um, but, but I think really has made a difference to the way Tolkien is generally perceived. Even if people haven't heard of my book, the ideas have filtered out um, and you know, it's, it, it, he's now generally presented not as an elderly, fusty professor with a pipe, um, but as a, a war veteran, you know. Let's get to that. So, so just briefly, um, the bio of Tolkien and more importantly, the impactful influences which you started to talk about on his life that influenced him and then his writings. So like the time frame, the key events, and the impact. Well, in a nutshell, everything that influenced Tolkien, yeah? <laughs> in a nutshell. I know, it's... it's. All right. So it's, I, it's mostly very early on, and somewhere he says, and I'm, you know, it, it's perfectly common sense, that our deepest influences are our earliest ones. Um, so first of all, there was a move to England from Southern Africa. He was born in the Orange Free State, which is now part of South Africa, um, where his English father ran a district bank. Um, he didn't thrive in that climate. So his mother brought him and his younger brother back to England um, when Tolkien was three. And the change from this arid veldt to this green, temperate, very fertile landscape of rolling hills and trees and streams and so on, 
um, was just a revelation to Tolkien. Um, he fell in love with it. He fell permanently in love with it. And you can see that. You, you can breathe it through his depictions of the Shire and Lord of the Rings in particular and in The Hobbit. So that was, that's one key change. And of course, that's the, one of the reasons why we can see that place is so important to Tolkien. Um, while they were away, his father died. His father died, he lost his father at the age of four, and then he lost his mother at the age of 12. So that was another major impact. So Tolkien talks about, not late in life especially, he talked about how Lord of the Rings is all about death. Um, you might say that the, the whole scenario of his mythology where you have, you know, two principal players, humans, including hobbits, and elves, or mortals and immortals, right? is an experiment in what a world would be like if there were no um, natural mortality, how that would play out. Would the elves be enviable? Right? And he actually creates a very interesting situation where uh, the elves are effectively immortal, though they can be killed, um, but they are bound within the created world. So their souls, who knows what happens to their souls when the world ends? Perhaps, perhaps that's it for them. Whereas ours uh, leave the circles of the world, as he calls it, and go somewhere else. And of course, he means into eternity, into, in, into something he understands um, as being, a, you know, a divine, a divinely ordained afterlife. Um, so beyond that, we have <laughs> so he's an orphan, a young age, and now he's an orphan. He's an orphan. He also um, this this love of England then had um, uh, ran into a crisis because his mother had taken him and his younger brother to this little village outside the city of Birmingham, um, which Tolkien throve in and loved. And again, we see that coming through in depictions of the Shire but they had to move away. Um, and much later on, Tolkien revisited it and the whole place had been overrun by suburbia. So that feeds into, um, into the climax of the Lord of the Rings, where I'm sorry about the spoilers, but the hobbits return yeah. from their adventure um, and you know, from defeating massive embodied uh, mythological evil um, and find that their homeland has been overtaken by uh, uh, um, a rank industrialist um, who's putting up shabby homes all over the place and so on. You know, this is, this is what had happened to Tolkien's childhood place. Then we have Catholicism. Um, so Tolkien was um, brought into Catholicism by his mother, who converted after the death of the father. Um, and when she died, his guardian was their Catholic priest. So that, was, that went very, very deep. Um, and I have to say, it's not an area of my expertise, um, but it's, it's certainly something that, that people research and ought to research. Is, is this still, I'm sorry. Is, is this still, in terms of religion, is this still a period in England where there is discrimination against and lack of rights um, for Catholics? Yeah, absolutely. During this time? So the, the family, the wider family, um, cut Mabel, his mother, off 
when she converted to Catholicism. Tolkien felt that she had died a martyr, that she had made herself mortally sick, uh, struggling to look, look after her two boys. Um, and I guess that cemented his um, deep faith, or you know, fed into it. Into it. Um, I mean, and interestingly, he said in one of his late letters, um, uh, something along the lines of, uh, and I have to say, I don't know the historical background to this, uh, that, that Roman Catholics now in Britain are still susceptible to uh, some of the disadvantages that even Jews are not, not susceptible to. So I don't know if he's talking about law there or or prejudice. Uh, I don't know how subjective or objective that is, but that's a that's an interesting comment. Um, another deep influence to go back to that topic: uh, friendships, of course. Um, so we we know his, his deep friendship with C.S. Lewis, the Narnia author, is is well known, um, and Tolkien acknowledged that without Lewis's support and you know, constant enthusiasm and his tendency to say, come on, Tolkien, Tollers, as he called him, raise the game, you know, um, he would not have finished The Hobbit and he would not have finished The Lord of the Rings or turned it into the the masterpiece that it is. Um, and before Lewis, there was there were some friends whose story I tell in Tolkien and the Great War, old school friends of his, who went into the war with him as young men, oh, went on their separate paths in the war. Uh, there were three of them, two of them were killed. Um, and they were the first audience for his mythology because he started crafting that during the First World War. Um, and the, my, my book is, you know, an exploration of their relationships uh, and the relationship of his mythology to that war. Then there's his uh, childhood sweetheart and fiance and wife, Edith, Edith Bratt, who inspired one of the key figures in his mythology, the uh, uh, elven princess Luthien, who marries a mortal man, a warrior returning from terrible war, and kind of helped him overcome his trauma. Um, uh, and and to show how closely Tolkien identified her and himself with these characters, he put their names on their own uh, gravestone in Oxford, Baron and Luthien. Um, language and legend I've already talked about, and, and Tom Shippey, uh, his, his expertise in, in that field. Um, Tolkien said that it was just as the great war burst upon me that I realised that languages need legends, hence his mythology building. And then, of course, um, and I, this can't be understated, the importance of war itself. So, you know, there are there are flaws in what Tolkien wrote, um, and some of them can be, I think, exaggerated by a failure to understand where he was coming from, a failure to understand his historical context. So one of the flaws that's often mentioned is that there are too few women, which is fair enough, although the women that are there are often very, very interesting, you know, Eowyn and Galadriel in Lord of the Rings. Um, 
I think there are the fundamental reason there are so few women in in the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings is because these are these are stories modelled on Tolkien's own experience, or feeding from Tolkien's own experience of going off to war in the company of other men. It's as simple as that. Do, do you think that the fact that that he was orphaned at a young age, that in addition to his obviously natural curiosity and imagination, that because he was an orphan, he looked inside himself more and imagination played a greater role than it would have been for an, a child that was not an orphan? Or do you think that's just really not such a factor? I, I would always be inclined to say it, it's probably more complicated than that. I mean, that, that's what my research suggests you know we we tend to think in terms of binary oppositions right. um and actually you know we're, we're, it can often be dialectical um or you know a, a, an intermixture of things um so there's evidence i think uh that tolkien was already deeply imaginative loved to tell stories loved to remake his world in fictional form um, in the memories of his brother, so his brother has a, kept a little notebook uh, late in life where he jotted down um, his memories of this little village outside Birmingham where the two of them used to play in the fields and woods. And it's full of characters um, like ogres and witches, right? Now, Hillary was uh, a year, a year younger than Tolkien, I think, two years. Anyway, um, younger. Uh, and Tolkien was and uh, remained, you know, by far the most um, he was the big brother. He had he and he definitely had a, a, a bigger brain than Hillary. Hillary was a, a, a simple man. Uh, he became a fruit grower. Um, Tolkien became the professor of uh, uh, Anglo-Saxon. Um, I think I think that notebook is evidence that Tolkien was world building even when he was seven say right um then becoming fully orphaned at 12 yes it threw him in upon himself um but what he actually did then was mostly tinkering with his invented languages that that was how he tended to um entertain himself um and it was very time consuming you know massively complex uh, operation not just making up words but making up words that sound uh, consistent within a, a single aesthetic um that have uh their own histories you know languages develop languages develop according right. to certain rules and Tolkien built could, that he, could, he, could he speak these languages did he he spoke languages I don't uh, think uh, so no he was an academic linguist. Academic linguists don't necessarily speak the languages they know. You know, okay. um, yes, Tolkien could probably have uh, held a conversation in, in Old English, Anglo-Saxon. Right. Um, but uh, I don't think there's any evidence. That
Ah, last second. Okay, fine. Last there. Um, I'll just resume where I was. Yeah, that's fine. Could he speak the languages? Um, yeah, there's 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 no evidence that he could speak Elvish or would speak Elvish. I mean, after all, there was no one he could have spoken it to. And, <laughs> okay. But he could compose in it. You know, he he one of his ambitions was to compose poetry, and in a sense, there's no more perfect uh, act of creativity for a human, at least in his mind, uh, because humans are fundamentally people creatures with the capacity to, to speak language. Uh, no more perfect piece of creativity than to, to create a, a poem uh, in an invented language. That's like the, the couple of these in, um, in the two main Elvish languages in The Lord of the Rings. Um, and very beautiful they are, both in their thought and in their um, expression in translation and in the, the, the flavour of that, the beauty, the music of the language. Um. Why, why does Tolkien's work resonate um, across you know, different types of people, perhaps different ages? Or, or, or is, it, is it that it, it, it speaks to children who carry it with them? Do adults pick up Tolkien? You know, does a 50-year-old who's never read Tolkien pick up Tolkien and just say, wow, like the kids do? Um, I, I think obviously when you pick anything up uh, in your teens uh, right. you're, if you're going to love it you're going to love it with a passion that you that's hard Absolutely. to replicate later in life you know um, nonetheless people do come to Tolkien in all kinds of different ways um, and the demographic is very different from the 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 the, the demographic of you know spotty teenage boys which uh, is what, what, what I think it's probably still associated associated with to some people um, I, I have to admit I fitted that demographic but <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, I think uh, well several reasons well of course Tolkien writes quite designedly in, in, in mythic archetypes. And mythic ar archetypes go deep. They are um, uh, multicultural. Um, he sets his action in a world which is quasi-medieval or classical perhaps, an ancient world anyway, um, where there are no, you know, real obvious contemporary signposts that the new generation might look upon and think, oh, well, that's old hat now, right? Um, so whereas a lot of stuff that's published in the 1930s or the 1950s uh, will just hold no interest for younger readers because it's, the, the feel of it, the atmosphere is, is so old hat. Uh, that, that simply can't apply to Tolkien. Um, and also the other thing is, of course, he wrote for children and he wrote for adults. He wrote The Hobbit and other things intentionally for his own children. Um, but at the same time, he was writing it for C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis was, was, was an adult with sophisticated tastes and interests. And he was writing it, too, for himself. So he didn't set up these rather artificial barriers that, um, you know, publishing and marketing tend to want to impose, immediate tends to want to impose, you know, 
Um, he actually liked to um, push the envelope, play around with barriers. Um, he never wrote the same thing twice, you know. Um, this is one of the interesting things about him. So he wrote a, a mythology, the Silmarillion, um, which is the thing he kept working on throughout his life. He wrote a children's story set there, completely different in style and perspective. And he wrote The Lord of the Rings, a, a, a self-contained epic set there, again, totally different. And when he, he sat down to start a sequel to The Lord of the Rings, which he never completed, never got very far with, and that was going to be a detective story, a detective thriller, again, a totally different oh. genre. So, yeah. you know, he's, he, he, he resists being boxed. <laughs>